just want to start out by telling a, a brief story that really has nothing to do with the sermon today, but I think it's a funny story. Uh, about 14 years ago, uh, we were in a national search looking for a pastor to plant the church that is now the Oak River Church. And we, we sent out uh, far and wide, we sent out um, inquiries and we got, oh, I don't know, we probably got 30 or 40 responses. And one of the ones I particularly liked was a young man by the name of Phil Covert. He was very good. And so we, uh, I flew up to, to Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, where nearby he was the, uh, uh, an assistant, I guess he was a youth guy. And, uh, and I had a, he said, um, I'd like for you to, to meet me at the gas station. I thought that was odd, but then I found out that that was like the center of the world for this town in North Carolina was the BP station. And uh, as it turns out, he was the youth pastor for um, a, a gentleman by the name of Patrick Womack. And uh, Allison was the piano player. Patrick was the pastor, and I was trying to pick their pocket. And uh, but it just goes to show you can't you know you have to you can't get away with anything. <laughs> this world is way too small for that. So, well, today we are going to um, take a, a second look at uh, the book of First Samuel, and uh, I wanted to to do this. This is. You know, last week we talked about David and Goliath, and that's, that's a fairly easy sermon to preach because it's a fairly well-known passage of Scripture, and, and um, it's, it's a lot of people's favorites. And I think that uh, it's not that hard to find Jesus in that passage. Today's a little bit more of a challenge. We're in 1 Samuel 22, but if the hermeneutic principle is right, then we should be able to find Jesus in here. And so... Um, we're going we're gonna to take a look at this passage, 1 Samuel 22. If um, I, I put several of the scriptures in your outline that's in your bulletin, but if you, if you reach underneath and grab a Bible, that, that might be useful to you too in 1 Samuel 22. Before we get started, let's pray. God, we thank you that we can be together here tonight. We thank you for this family uh, gathering and uh, our, the center of attention of our family tonight is Jesus Christ. And God, we seek to honor him. We seek to see him in all of the scriptures. And now as we take a look at this passage, we pray that you would open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. So um, one of my favorite commentators is a guy by the name of Dale Ralph Davis. He teaches at uh, Westminster West, which is a seminary in Escondido, California. And he writes uh, in this First Samuel, which incidentally, it's, it's a very good commentary. And if you wanted to pick one up on First Samuel, this is a good one to pick up. But Dale Ralph Davis writes a, a very good commentary on this First Samuel passage. And he relates the following story to kick off his comments. In 1938, Roman Tursky, a Polish flyer, was returning home from France. His plane developed engine trouble, and he had to land for repairs in Nazified Vienna. 
Next morning, as Tursky stepped out of his hotel to buy souvenirs before resuming his flight, a fellow came running through the door and slammed into him. And before Tursky could inflict verbal vengeance, he saw the man was white with fear. And he said, Gestapo, Gestapo. Tursky rushed him through the lobby up to his own room and arranged the man's slender body under the covers at the foot of his bed. Tursky made himself look like he had just gotten up, and after the visiting Gestapo had checked his passport and shouted questions, they left without searching the room. The pilot showed his grateful visitor his flight map. They communicated by gestures. No, Tursky couldn't take him to Warsaw. He had to land for fuel in Krakow, and, and uh, drawing prison bars on the margin of the map, he indicated that to his new friend that he would be arrested at the airport if he went with him to Krakow. He would land in some meadow just over the Polish border, and his passenger would be on his own. They did, and he was. And then Tursky, uh, Tursky landed at Krakow, and the police were there to search his plane. They had been told that he assisted uh, a man escaping from Vienna. They found nothing, so they had to release him. And he asked why the man was wanted. They said because he was a Jew. Tursky served as a fighter pilot in the Pol Polish Air Force. And after Poland's defeat, he and others crossed to Romania, where they were caught and sent to concentration camps. Tursky managed to escape and joined the French Air Force. And after France's fall, he went to England and fought in the Battle of Britain. On one of his missions, he rammed a German plane and was hit by a scrap of its tail. Partially blinded with blood, he was unconscious when he landed his spitfire in England. His skull had been fractured, and the chief surgeon at the hospital thought it was useless to operate. But he awoke and saw a narrow face looking down on him. The fellow in the white smock spoke. Do you remember me? You saved my life in Vienna. Tursky remembered and learned the rest of the story. It seemed that that fugitive passenger had eventually arrived in Warsaw. Before the war, he had escaped to Scotland, and he heard that a Polish squadron had distinguished itself in the Battle of Britain, and he thought Tursky might be in it, and he wrote to inquire. He was. He knew, Tursky, he knew Tursky's name because it had been written on the margin of the map, and the day before he had read of a Polish hero shooting down five enemy planes and crash landing near a certain hospital. The piece that the written piece had indicated that the flyer can the flyer's condition seemed hopeless. So he asked the RAF in Edinburgh to fly him to the hospital that was named. Tursky asked him, why did you do that? His answer, I thought at last I could do something to show my gratitude. You see, I'm a brain surgeon and I operated on you this morning. Davis concludes, who would have guessed? that by shielding a fugitive, one was saving his own savior. The story also helps us think about the biblical story of David as it's advanced in 1 Samuel 22, which is, will be our text. But let's do a, a quick review of the events that transpired between 1 Samuel 17, where we talked last week of David and Goliath, and the events of First uh, Samuel 22. Here are the historical facts. David is on the run. 
Saul having vowed to kill him. You see, when they found out that David had killed Goliath and, and Samuel had been shaking in his tent uh, way back from the front lines, people began to be a little um, annoyed at Samuel's leadership, or at uh, Saul's leadership. And Saul was suffering from a severe lack of appreciation for this. And uh, he, he vowed to kill David. Saul uh, had run off the rails and not only trying to kill David, but he tried to spear his own son. And David becomes a man without a home. He is always on the move because Saul is trying to kill him. And they ch- he's chasing him all around Israel. David went to a city named Nob, which had become the new house of the tabernacle, and it became the place of worship in Israel. The priest at Nob was kind of like the Billy Graham of the day. His name was Ahimelech. And David asked for the sacred bread to eat. When David came into the camp, he and his men were tired. They were on the run. They were hoping for anonymity. And, uh, and they came and they asked Ahimelech if they could eat the showbread. And that was only for the priest to eat. Ahimelech looked on and said, yeah, go ahead. My translation. And Doeg the Edomite looked on as well. Uh, Doeg uh, was, a, was a Gentile. He was a pagan. And, uh, and he was watching what was taking place in that camp. And then David went to Philistia, the home of Goliath, and the Philistines, who were the sworn enemies of Israel. David is recognized, he's called out, and then he feigns mental illness. He, he drools, he, he walks in a funny way, he talks funny, and, um, and he, he did that to avoid capture and incarceration. That's how, how much on the run he was. But the king of Philistia... He's brought to the king of Philistia, and the king of Philistia says, and this kind of cracks me up, he says, do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to to behave as a madman in my presence? Well, David was released on his own own recognizance. Now, the next thing is we see David's growing kingdom in the shadows. He has sort of a shadow uh, kingdom that he's creating within the larger kingdom of Israel. Uh, Chapter 22 is the next chapter in David's Chronicles, and it opens up in a town called Adullam, where there is a cave. And I don't know that there's anything particularly unique or special about this cave, but it does identify the area in, in a cave region found west of Bethlehem and just a couple of miles east of Philistine territory. That would have been like a DMZ. And it was dangerous. And the proximity to Philistia would make Saul uh, think twice before looking for David in that area. At least it would slow him down. Now, Saul undoubtedly would have been looking for retribution against David. So his family would have been in imminent danger. David's family travels uh, to, to David from Bethlehem. But more than David's family came to him. David's first expats are mentioned in verse 2 of this passage. So 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter of soul gathered to David. And he became commander over them 
And there were with him about 400 men. It was a ragtag group indeed. And the nature of their condition is important to recognize. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter of soul. In other words, David had all the broken people with him. Now, we're going to come back and, and revisit that idea in a few minutes, but I want you to file that away. But as we're coming back to it, don't put it too deep in the stacks. Now, what to do with his parents? David was the youngest of eight children. His parents were, no doubt, up in years. And David's nomadic lifestyle would have been intolerable for them. So David took them to a country called Moab. Moab would have been southeast of the Dead Sea, and they'd had several skirmishes with the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt hundreds of years before. But a couple of generations before this time, a woman named Ruth caught the eye of a prominent Israelite named Boaz, and they married. Boaz was a Hebrew, and Ruth, well, Ruth was a Moabite. Now, what we're going to see is a remarkable uh, display of God's providence. Because you see, like Roman Tursky, who would come years, millennia later, God was busy preparing a savior for such a time as this. Because you see, Ruth was David's great-grandmother. And, and because she was a Moabitess, there was a special place in the hearts of Moab for this Israelite. And so when David brought his folks to the king of Moab, they were given his protection. And having done that, Gad the prophet, uh, prophets were often advisors to leaders, that uh, prophet Gad encouraged David to get out of Moab and went into the region of Judah some distance away. And we read this, this little section here in 1 Samuel 22, uh, 1 through 5, and I'll read that. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there, and there were with him about 400 men. And David went from Mizpah to Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in this stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Well, the next section, uh, we see David being betrayed. While all of that was going on with David, the scene shifts to Saul. So we have, we have two scenes. We have the, this one scene here with David. Now we're going to shift over here to this, what's going on in Saul's life. Saul was sitting in his home of Gibeah with a spear in his hand and his servants encircling him. Apparently, that was a common uh, practice and posture of the kings of the nations that surrounded Israel. 
In 1 Samuel 8, the people had asked for a king so they could be like all the other nations. And as time went on, Saul was more and more resembling the king from all the other nations. Saul is steamed because no one came to Saul with news of David's whereabouts. He even appealed to the tribal loyalties of those Benjamites who were surrounding him. In 1 Samuel 22, 7. Now here... Uh, here now, people of Benjamin. That's Saul's tribe. Saul says that he was the one who could redistribute flocks and vineyards and make them and their children officers in his army, enriching them. What's interesting about this is that earlier in Samuel, uh, Samuel predicted that these things would happen. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 15, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and daughters and make them serve with his chariots and horses. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And he will take the best of your fields and olive groves and give them to your attendants. For Samuel 22.7, we're comparing that to that passage. And for Samuel 22.7, it says, And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Will the sons of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? You see, what, what Samuel meant as a warning Saul was now proud of as a present reality. Not one of Saul's servants or subjects would spill the beans on David, but there was one Gentile, Doeg the Edomite. Remember him? He was the one who looked on as Ahimelech let David take the showbread. Doeg the Edomite. The Edomites were despised by God because they wouldn't give safe passage to the Israelites in the wilderness. And Doeg's Edomite heritage is mentioned whenever he's brought up. Doeg was at the tabernacle at Nob where Ahimelech gave David the showbread. And David also got Goliath's sword, which was probably a pretty valuable piece of metal in those days. Doeg spilled the beans, and in so doing, he put a match to the fuse. We read about this in verses 6 through 10. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height of his spear, with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the sons of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the sons of Jesse. None of you is uh, sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait uh, as, uh, as at this day. Then answers Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse go, coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he required of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And then there was some mass carnage. So Saul sent for the prophets, the priests of Nob, 
led by Ahimelech. And Saul asks Ahimelech why he has conspired against him. Ahimelech says, and this is my translation, are you kidding? David is a great guy. Everyone loves him. I have prayed for him often, but I know nothing of this conspiracy. Well, it was a lie. Now, John Stott would call that a misdirection. Uh, but it was uh, a lie that was told in defense of David. And uh, just like David had actually lied to him. Saul knows it, and he sentences uh, Ahimelech to die. And not only him, but all of the 85 priests who served at the tabernacle in Nob. He told his guard to take them down. And you know what his guard did? They refused. They refused to act. So he tells Doeg the Edomite to do so. And happily, with joy, Edom or Doeg the Edomite kills all 85. And then he goes to Nob, and he kills every man, woman, child, and animal. Interestingly, Samuel told Saul to do that to the bloodthirsty Agag and the Amalekites, and Saul did a halfway job deciding against God's instruction who should live and who should die. So, Doeg, the pagan, was more obedient to the commander-in-chief's order than Saul was when God was the commander-in-chief. But one priest escaped, the son of Ahimelech, and his name was Abiathar, and he would become David's priest for the rest of his days. We read this in verses 11 through 20. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest and son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king, and Saul said, Hear now, sons of Hittub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul says to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the sons of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword you have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood by him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man, woman, child, infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. So this is really a great story of divine providence. It's kind of a difficult story when you read this. My my son used to go to a church in uh, 
Virginia. And it was a, it was a, a very um, conservative church, a very biblically-based church. And they, they just would start in chapter 1, verse 1, and go straight through. And um, he happened to, he was in the military, so he was just stationed there for a time. And he happened to be there during the time when they were doing Leviticus. And I said, what you learn about in church today? And he said, oozing sores. And I thought, well, that's a hard sermon to preach. Um, this, is not, this is not an altogether easy sermon to preach simply because the outcome is kind of gruesome by our estimations. But it really, in the end, is a great story of God's divine providence. And that's the story of the destruction of the priests of Nob and David's rise with a ragtag army. Now, that army would continue to grow and grow and grow, and eventually Saul would see his demise, and David would take over and be um, to his rightful place as king. Um, what, what are the takeaways from this particular passage? Well, I think the first takeaway that we could take away from this is, be careful what you ask for. The Israelites asked for a king like the other nations, and in so doing, they were rejecting God as king. And what they got was a king like all the other nations, a king who used power and position to political advantage with no apparent concern for the people, his own subjects. He stepped on them in the process. Saul took fields and vineyards from some subjects only to give it to other to make people he, uh, he cared about, that he wanted to like him, and he would give his, the largesse to them so that they would like him. Very often, we pray for things, including health, and sometimes those things are counterproductive to what we need. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, it's not so much that we're distracted by things, it's that we're willing to settle for so little. I read a book uh, some time ago by Alistair Begg called Pray Big. And he makes the same point and uses Paul's prayer, particularly uh, in this chapter, to, um, to the Ephesians to make this point. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Paul writes, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul asked for big things. If you pray small, you may get small. And if you pray big, you may get big. So be careful what you ask for. Second, there's a kingdom within a kingdom. Saul was acting as the king of Israel. Now, David actually had been anointed by Samuel as the king, and so there were, at the time, two apparent kings. 
And David is starting his little kingdom just as a little bunch of 400 ragtag people inside of the larger country of Israel. He's gathering, David is gathering a kingdom within a kingdom. He isn't exactly getting the brightest and best. In fact, he's getting the distressed and the indebted. But the thought that occurs to me is that this kingdom is the kingdom of God, just like Jesus' version a thousand years later. Jesus got the distressed and indebted, the outcasts of polite society, but people who knew that they needed a savior. Christianity is made up not of people who are inherently better, or people who use more resolve to improve themselves. In fact, Christianity is made up of people who know they need a Savior through their distress and because of their indebtedness of their souls. Maybe, aren't, maybe you aren't sure. Maybe you think, I'll never be good enough. And my response is, that's right. You will never be good enough. And that's the point. The church is made up of people who know they aren't good enough the distressed and spiritually indebted. What is interesting to me is that this kingdom within, within a kingdom is not confined to the kingdom of the United States. Now, we as a country have within the country the church, which is the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is growing within that other I'll call it a kingdom. It's not a kingdom. It's a democratic republic, a constitutional republic. But within that, there is the church, the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and Christianity is the only world religion that crosses cultural and national lines, except for maybe atheistic humanism. Islam crosses borders, but there are relatively few converts it crosses borders by adherence bringing that with them. And the same with Buddhism and Judaism and Confucianism and Hinduism and Taoism and every other ism. Precious few converts and even fewer converts through the generations. Christianity is altogether different. It started in Palestine and it crossed cultural and state lines. It moved east through India and west through southern Europe. It pushed up through Europe and across the United States, then down South America and in Africa. And in, in our generation, the United States of America will become actually number four in the list of most adherents to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Asia, South America, and Africa will all surpass. That's why many sociologists think the world is becoming more religious and not re less religious in spite of predictions from naturalists from a century ago who said that when people get more educated, they will get less religion. Okay, now, we could stop there, but we're not going to. Because if we stop there, we've gotten some great moral lessons and a nice history lesson but we'd miss the point of this passage. You see, David was, is the prototypical Christ. Christ with a small c. What I mean is that 
is David prefigured Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ with a capital C. David was on the run for perhaps seven years, being marginalized and harangued by the national establishment. So was Jesus. David was homeless, uh, living on the good graces of friends and neighbors. So was Jesus. Jesus said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. David was betrayed by Doeg. Judas was, or Jesus was betrayed by Judas. David suffered. He, though he was a king, David suffered. Actually, when you think about it, David had a pretty rotten life. As kings go, you know, you think of a nice palace, lots of, the Queen of England, there you go, that we talked about this morning. That's how you think of royalty. David was king, but he was living on the run. He suffered, and Jesus suffered. But he suffered in his own words. He said, for I give you an example that as I suffer, so too will you suffer as well. But Jesus' suffering was for more, uh, was for every one of his people. Jesus suffered the humiliation of being a helpless babe. He was God who spoke the world's into existence, but chose to limit himself to infancy. He hungered and he thirsted like David. He was hounded. He was arrested. He was tried, convicted. He was tortured and he was crucified. But there was a purpose for it. Peter tells us, Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And I think we also can conclude from this that God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. For David, he had the distressed, the indebted, and the bittered of soul. Jesus has the distressed, the indebted, and the bitter of soul. You see, the priests, the priests of Nob, absorbed the loss by their uh, absorbed the loss by their lives. They kept David from being condemned. Jesus, our great high priest, absorbed the loss by his life to make us free from condemnation. Just like Ahimelech absorbed the loss, dying as a substitute, so Jesus absorbed the loss of a canceled debt by dying as a substitute. Here's where we find Jesus. You know, whenever a, a debt is canceled, or defaulted upon, someone has to absorb the loss. If you go to a bank and you take out a loan and you say, so I can't pay it back, that bank has to absorb the loss. Our sin debt was canceled. Someone had to absorb the loss. It was Jesus. And in David's time, David was freed from condemnation because Ahimelech absorbed the loss. He died that uh, David might go free. And our Lord Jesus died that we might be free. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved the indebted like us. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures which point to our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the one who absorbed the loss for us by giving his life so that we might gain eternal life. 
Thank you for that. Thank you for the the gift of life through Jesus. Uh, God, we pray that we might be um, respectful of your providence, that we might uh, pray big, that we be careful of, of what we would bring before you. But in the end, God, pray big that uh, Christ might be glorified, that your kingdom might grow, and that Christ would be glorified. Thank you, God, for this time together. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is our strong Savior. Amen. We're going to close tonight by singing together my tribute in your uh, the flyer inside your bulletin. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of you both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.